Uh, so my name is Jonathan. I'm one of the pastors here at Redeemer City. And we are a couple of weeks into a series on the book of Romans. Uh, we're going to be in the book for a long time. It's a long book. There's a lot to cover. Uh, and yet, uh, as I'm sure you have enjoyed the last few weeks, we're going to continue this week to talk about sin. Yes, everyone's favorite topic. Very encouraged. That I know I was actually re-listening to a sermon from last week or the week before where Drew talked about a pastor in Minneapolis yelling at people for two years about their sin. Uh, I think the church still exists. I think it still has a hundred, several, several hundred people there. So there's hope we can make it through this, maybe grow in the process. Uh, we'll see. But what, what, uh, what the last couple of weeks have been is a look at how much we need righteousness. Uh, the gospel is the power for righteousness. What we saw even last week, uh, Paul's commentary on Genesis 1, 2, and 3 is Romans 1, 2, and 3, really. Uh, and so there's a lot of bad news here, and yet uh, the bad news can't appreciate the good news without first feeling the weight of the bad news. The righteousness we need comes from God alone, and the gospel is the only source of the power to get it. The bad news is we're not righteous, we're wicked rebels, we're usurpers, uh, and so we find out God is angry, God's terribly angry about the ungodliness and unrighteousness of humanity. And so last week, uh, we went all the way through the end of chapter 1, but today we're going to back up and just kind of drill down into those verses Helen read, specifically verses 21 uh, through 25. Uh, we got a lot more detail about the problem itself last week. We get a description of the problem, uh, and yet this morning we're going to try and explore the source. What's the source, what the source is of our sinfulness? Paul talks about how sin escalates as God presently gives us over to things like the lusts of our hearts, dishonorable passions, debased minds. Uh, and you, in your worship folder, have an insert, and it has the reading uh, from Romans, it's 18 to 25 on one side, and the outline on the other. If you have a Bible and you have Romans 1, uh, the whole chapter there open, uh, you may find it helpful just for the sake of reference see uh, how this fits in with kind of the bigger picture of where Paul's going. But this morning, uh, we want to look at the source, the source that's ailing us. Where do the lusts of the heart and where do the dishonorable passions come from? Why are those the words that are used? Uh, and so I want to do that with uh, three headings or three topics, and you see them there. Sin's source. I want to talk about idolatry, describe it a little bit. Secondly, what does it mean when the heart gets hijacked? And, and how we practice idolatry. Uh, and then lastly, this sense of, you see it, and I'm going to refer to it a number of times, uh, verse 23, uh, they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images, and then verse 25, they exchanged the truth about God for a lie. Uh, another way to say that is they substituted one thing for another. Uh, and, and not only how we do that, but how we can be saved from that, how we can be delivered from that. How is Jesus the ultimate substitute that changes how we engage with our idols? Uh, we sang about it a minute ago. Uh, his, uh, 
looking to him, looking at him, uh, can alone from idols draw. Uh, and so we're going to look at those three things. First, the source of sin. The, the word the Bible uses repeatedly to describe the source of sin is idolatry. Uh, an easy way to define idolatry is an idol is a God substitute. Okay? Simple enough. Idol equals God substitute. If you think about the first commandment of the famous Ten Commandments, God says, you shall have no other gods before me. And when Jesus was asked about the greatest commandment of the law, he said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, and all your strength. Those are significant because they recognize and they call attention to the core problem. God says, first, first thing out of his mouth, you shall have no other gods before me. Don't substitute something else in my place. And Jesus says, first, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, as opposed to loving other things. Uh, both of them, both of them knew what our issue really is. The Bible starts from the conviction that human beings are not primarily thinking beings, but primarily lovers. Uh, it defines human beings by what they desire, not by what they know. And, and the, the reason I know that is because the center and the seat of personhood, if I can use that word, according to the Bible, is the gut level regions of the heart. It's the wellspring of life, says Proverbs. One recent book argued, you are what you love, not what you eat, not what you think. You are what you love. Why? Because you worship and serve what you love. Simple enough, right? Uh, Augustine began his famous book, Confessions with this statement, you have made us for yourself, O God, and our heart is restless until it rests in you. What is he talking about there? It's a design claim. And idolatry is working against that design. See, we are always living, you and I, intentionally, whether we realize it or not, because human life is always aimed at something. It can't not be aimed at something. Maybe it's a good job. Maybe it's a reputation. Maybe it's a certain family dynamic. Retirement, travel, adventure, becoming the CEO, maybe just survival, whatever, right? We are after something. Everybody's after something. What are you after, right? And the engine driving us toward whatever that end that we're after is, is our heart. Uh, think about this phrase, go with your gut. You ever heard that phrase before? What does that phrase mean to you? When I say to you, or when somebody says to you, just go with your gut. Do we mean to encourage one another to make significant life decisions based on how our stomach is feeling at the time? Uh, I don't think so, right? Uh, but the Bible refers to our inner parts and other strange phrases to describe the deepest places from which come our deepest motivational drives. And this is, this is fascinating. Uh, I mean, if you're nerdy like me, you'll appreciate this. If you're not, sorry. Um, but recent studies of the gut, that is this part down here of your body, recent studies of the gut have actually shown that microbes in the gut have tremendous influence on the brain. Isn't that incredible? So maybe that's where the idea of gut feelings comes from, right? You don't think of your gut as having feelings other than the feeling of being hungry or having had too much food. Uh, but maybe that's where that idea comes from, right? Isn't it amazing how we're wired together uh, in such a fantastic way 
by our designer. But see, idols are things we're after uh, other than God. And because the heart is really running the show, we can talk about them as loves. Idols are lovers. Because they influence what you want. They influence what you long for. They're, they're, they're trying to satisfy that restlessness that's inside of all of us, that, that anxiety. Right? Lovers can make demands of you. They can require sacrifices of you. You get, you get the idea. But idols are not only lovers, they're also liars. Right? Remember, they're God substitutes. So they demand worship and service. They promise rest. Yet, do they deliver? In Genesis chapter 3, the serpent directly contradicts God's clear words. What does he say to, to the man and the woman? You will not surely die, but you'll be like who? You'll be like God. But what happened instead? When they, when they ate the fruit, chaos, fear, hiding, lying, in other words, restlessness, their heart began to, rest, to, to be restless. And God comes walking in the cool of the day and says to them, where are you? Right? They took walks in the afternoon in the garden together. And here they are this day after the serpent tempts them, lies to them. They believe the lie. They exchange God's truth for the lie. We'll come back to that. And this exchange takes place. They... they, they, they they chose the lie over the truth of God's words, which were, I love you. You can trust me. I have your best interests at heart. Don't touch that tree. Right? I've designed you to live and flourish this way. All these trees over here, except that one. And Paul says, because of this exchange, God has given us over to the lusts of our hearts. The word lust has kind of been co-opted to just refer to sexual sin. But in the Bible, it's a very broad word because it's another word for desires, over-desires, desires that are, that, are, that are running rampant, right? The problem is the lusts that are driven by restless hearts that are longing, that are aiming, that are going after something, going after anything except God. Uh, I, I came across this illustration this week uh, that I found really, really helpful. Uh, to kind of illustrate how idolatry works in us, right? Uh, a great description of it. So in 1914, a uh, few years after the Titanic disaster, uh, off the Virginia coast, in thick fog, a steamer named the Monroe was rammed by a merchant ship named the Nantucket. Uh, the Monroe eventually sank, 41 sailors died, and the captain of the Nantucket was arraigned on charges. But in fact, uh, you can go back and find this article in the Annals of the New York Times. The Monroe captain, Edward Johnston, was grilled uh, on the witness stand for over five hours. And in the course of the trial, he testified, quote, that he navigated the Monroe with a steering compass that deviated as much as two degrees from a standard magnetic compass. He said the instrument was sufficient, tr sufficiently true to run the ship, and that it was the custom of Seamasters in the coastal trade to use such compasses. But his steering compass had never been adjusted in the years since he was master of the Monroe. So the faulty compass that he was relying on proved to be so. And the, the conclusion is misorientation, disorientation, 
has tragic consequences, doesn't it? And so if the heart is like a compass, our idols skew our orientation. They direct us toward longings and cravings that give us false bearings on life and cause us to think, oh, I'm sailing along just fine. But what are the results? Disaster, right? So, so what does that look like? What does that look like? Uh, what are some of the ways we can get caught? And, and why is it helpful to understand this human motives and desires? How, how do we get hijacked? Okay, And, and I, I choose that term intentionally. The heart gets hijacked. It gets taken over by uh, a, a promise from a lover that that lover will give rest, will rescue, will provide, whatever the case might be. And the two ways Paul describes the, the practice of idolatry in Romans 1 involve a substitution or an exchange. <coughs> so if you look there, he says, they exchange the glory of God for images resembling created things. In other words... What he's saying is, we rob God. We rob from God what is only due to Him. Exchanging the glory of God means you take the glory, the weight, the significance, the value of, that, that, that is only due to God. And you, 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 uh, you steal from Him and then you give it to something or someone else. Or, he says, we exchange the truth about God for a lie which usurps God's rule. We take him off the throne, and we worship and serve the created rather than the creator. Now listen, everyone worships and serves something. If you have friends who are very vehement that they're not Christians or not religious, or if you're here and, and maybe you think of yourself as silly as religious, let me, let, me, uh, let me say all human beings are religious. Everybody has a religion. Uh, I think it was Bob Dylan said, you know, everybody's got to serve somebody. Maybe the devil or maybe the Lord. Everybody's got to serve somebody. He, he understood the reality that we're all worshiping and serving something. Whatever most captures your heart and your imagination is what you will worship and serve. So just think about that. Let me repeat that. Whatever most captures your heart and imagination is what you will worship and serve. And as a result, Paul says, we become fools with darkened hearts. A few years ago, we preached through the book of Proverbs, and we defined a fool then as someone who doesn't live in reality. And so here's the you know, newsflash. When we're ruled by God's substitutes, it's like a hijacking is taking place. The cockpit of your heart is commanded by a counterfeit. Now, you ever finish a conversation with somebody? And it's a person who's struggling with dark thoughts or they're just very committed to a destructive life pattern or they can't seem to see a, 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 a way of relating in their life that's causing them pain or you pain. I mean, you talk to somebody like that, you're, it's like you're not getting through. They're just not getting it, right? And you walk away and have you ever said to yourself, there's something in reality. You ever said that? I said that this week, past week about somebody. Um, the reason we say that is because they aren't living in reality, right? That's what Paul refers to in Romans 1 as lusts of the heart, dishonorable passions, debased mind. They begin to hijack you, control you, and those out-of-control desires spin delusions, 
That's why you walk away sometimes from those types of people, or maybe somebody's walked away from you like that recently or at some point in your life and said, they're just not living in reality. Because those delusions are causing us to be ruled by them and thus not live in reality. So the question is, who or what rules my behavior? The Lord or a substitute? It's a lordship question. Who rules your behavior, the Lord or a substitute? Let me give you a couple of examples. These are, are three common emotions we all deal with. Uh, and the first one is anxiety. Anxiety is idolatry that gets mapped onto the future. So, for example, anxiety becomes very, very intensified to the degree that I've idolized finite things. Suppose my highest value, my functional meaning in life is politics, okay? Either the Democratic Party or the Republican Party. Then when my party experiences a great defeat, I don't experience just glum disappointment. I'm actually shaken to the very depths. I'm shaking. Oh my gosh, we lost. Right? I want to leave the country. And I'm too furious to speak to anyone who voted for the other side. That's how you know you have a problem. Right? But your anxiety is, is it, it's, it's fear of the future, right? And you've made an idol out of, if these people are in control, it's good. If these people are in control, it's bad, right? Secondly, guilt. Guilt is idolatry mapped onto the past. Guilt can become intensified to the degree that I've idolized finite things. So suppose I value a happy family. Therefore, my performance as a parent is valuable above everything else. Then, if my daughter goes wrong or has great problems, or my son, uh, I'm just not sorrowful and grieved, I'm actually stricken with neurotic guilt. I cannot forgive myself, I hate myself, I may become suicidal, right? The, 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 the intensity lets you know something is ruling you. Something has control of your heart. Lastly, anger and bitterness are idolatry mapped onto the present. Anger becomes intensified when someone or something stands between me and something that is my ultimate value. So, suppose my career is the measure of my worth as a person, and someone at work is harming it. Well, I'm not just going to be angry. I'll be so deeply bitter and capable of doing things to this person that I may blow up my career more thoroughly than that person ever could. Now, those three examples sound very extreme, and you're kind of like, well, that's not me. I, I mean, I don't really, kind of humorous, but I don't, no, no. No, no. You have done it. So part of what our goal is today is just to get you thinking. If your community group meets uh, today, I hope it just gets the group thinking. If not, that you'll just, you'll spend some time the rest of the day thinking, considering some of these difficult questions about where you have been wittingly or unwittingly ruled by God, by a substitute God. There's some uh, questions to gauge your motivational drives. And I think we have them on a slide. Should, I hope. Huh? No? So we don't have them on a slide. So let me read. Let me read. I could take this as an opportunity to tell you about some of the idols of the person who forgot to do this. <laughs> but I won't do that. Uh, because this is being recorded. Um, he, he, knows I, he knows I love him. 
But let me ask you a couple of these. And if you want these later, I can email them to you, text them to you, uh, whatever. Uh, I'll, I'll read through a few of them. What is my greatest nightmare? What do I worry about the most? Uh, what if I failed or lost it would cause me to not even want to live? Uh, where does my mind go to when I'm free? What preoccupies me? What makes me feel the most self-worth? What, what am I the proudest of? This is an interesting one. What unanswered prayer would make me think about turning from God? I think the reason that some of those are so helpful is they can uncover the things or the people that tend to be too important to you. Okay, hear me. So many things in our lives are important to us, and God has made them important to us, and we should, we should be making them and treating them as if they are important. The question is, when do they become too important? Right? See, I can want your approval, but when I start to lust after your approval, my heart has been hijacked by that desire, so I'm preoccupied with it. I'm loyal to it. I serve it. And when you approve of me, I steal glory from God. I put that glory onto your approval. And my heart goes, ah, I find rest. Until you don't approve of me. Right? Can you feel that substitution taking place? Instead of glorying in God's approval, I rob from him and I assign his glory to your approval. Instead of resting in the truth of God's love for me in Jesus, I rest in the lie of Satan, which is God the Creator's love isn't good enough. That is the core lie of Genesis 3 that you and I believe constantly. And we're constantly having to retool our hearts, recalibrate our hearts, you know, destroy the bad compass and reorient ourselves. Because we believe his love isn't good enough. I need the creatures. That's what Paul's saying in uh, verse 25. So, what's our hope? What's our hope in light of all of that? Well, look back for a moment at the assurance of pardon. Uh, Bob set it up really, really well. And, and, and again, uh, it's, it's very appropriate we would baptize on a day when we read these words. But God is promising something here, a complete and total renovation. I will sprinkle clean water on you. You shall be clean from all your uncleannesses. From all your idols I will cleanse you. I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. You shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers, and you shall be my people, and I will be your God. Talk about a promise of rest. These people were in exile when they were listening to these words. So what hope they would bring to them. He is promising a complete renovation. But how will it happen? Well, let me read you some words from uh, John Stott. This is a book he wrote, or from a book he wrote called The Cross of Christ. And this is one of the best summaries of the gospel I've ever read. It's unbelievable. He says, The concept of substitution may be said to lie at the heart of both sin and salvation. For the essence of sin is man substituting himself for God, while the essence of salvation is God substituting himself for man. 
Man asserts himself against God and puts himself where only God deserves to be. On the other hand, God sacrifices himself for man and puts himself where only man deserves to be. Man claims prerogatives that belong to God alone. God accepts penalties that belong to man alone. That's good news. The gospel, the gospel is better than simply unconditional love. We've got to be careful that it's not just, you know, isn't the gospel great? God loves you just as you are. The gospel says God accepts you just as Christ is. God has contraconditional love for you. Because Christ bears the curse you deserve. Christ is fully pleasing to the Father and gives you his perfect goodness. Christ reigns in power, making you the Father's child and coming close to you to begin to change what is unacceptable to God about you. God never accepts me as I am. He accepts me as I am in Jesus Christ. There's a big difference. The center of gravity is different because the true gospel does not allow God's love to be sucked into the vortex of the soul's lust for acceptance and worth in and of itself. We have a vortex. It's like a black hole, right? You, you, know, you, you have one too. I have one. And we lust for acceptance. I want you to come to me after this is over and say, wow, it's amazing. Because the black hole's sucking down into my, it's like, as much as I can get of it, right? As many of you as can come, man, I'm just sucking that in because there's a black hole. I'm lusting after acceptance and worth. Now, please don't have to work come and say, that was awful. <laughs> to make up for the fact that, well, I, you, you didn't want me to say it was good, right? <laughs> the true gospel radically decenters people. And it's what the Bible calls the fear of the Lord. It's what the Bible calls faith. It's to look outside of ourselves for something. It's why I chose Ezekiel 36, because God himself has to do that work. We do nothing. <laughs> The new heart, the new desires, they come from outside of us. And so we don't want the cross to simply become a demonstration that God loves me only. Not just, not just that simply. It, of course, is that. But if that happens, it can lose its force as the substitutionary atonement by the perfect lamb in my place who invites my repentance for sin that is so heart-pervasive is causing me not just guilt, but ruin. And only Jesus, only Jesus, bearing the curse due to me, can I be freed and healed from that. So with that in mind, I want to finish by looking at one verse. Uh, it should be printed for you there on your insert at the bottom by way of application. And it's just this. It's the last verse of John, of First John. First John is uh, 105 verses. It's pretty short uh, as a as, uh, books of the Bible go. And if you read through it, you get to the end, the last verse kind of catches you off guard. Uh, like, like, it's, like it's out of place, or just a thought he threw in for good measure at the end. Oh yeah, hey, I almost forgot. Oh yeah. Keep yourself from idols. Amen. You know, let's move on. But, it's so much more than that. Nothing in the Bible is there. happens stance. It's very intentional, right? Because the thing is, the power to keep yourself from idols is in his address. What does he call us, those whose faith is in Christ? What does he call us? Little children. Or uh, other translations of your, your Bible may say, beloved. 
to know that you are a beloved child, meaning the ability to live on your guard and steer clear of idols is to be controlled by all that lies behind me, called a child of God. To taste and so desire to have more of this what, what manner of love, what kind of love the Father has lavished on us. 1 John 3, verse 1. So two chapters earlier, he says, Behold, what manner of love the Father has given unto us that we should be called what? The children of God. Being loved in such a way, John says, should cast out fear, which is a source of unbelief. And, and how we often fall prey to idolatrous desires, we're, we're gripped by fear. Whoever has the Son, John says, has what? Remember? It's in 1 John. Whoever has the Son has life. So why would you look for life in any other source? Why would you pursue a substitute for life when you have life itself in the Son? Right? That's what he's saying. You have all you'll ever need in Him. So I'd ask you, have you turned from your idols to the living God? If you asked him to renew heart and mind in the truth, and whether you're a Christian or you're on your way, you're struggling, you're wrestling, or you're vehemently opposed, I hope that you've seen, at least begun to see, the source of our sin and yet also the Savior of our sin. Remember Romans 1, verse 17. It's not printed for you there, but he says, the gospel is the power for salvation. It's the source of inner renewal that's needed to daily take up our cross, to daily die to the false gods that we fabricate, and to daily walk with him who's full of grace, who wants to help, who wants to save. So let's pray and ask him to do that in us. Oh, Lord Jesus, we thank you for substituting yourself, for putting yourself in our place. Or putting yourself where only we deserve to be so that we could be where only you deserve to be. That is, seated at your table, made uh, a, a citizen of the kingdom of light, transferred from the kingdom of darkness, given a heart transplant, had clean water sprinkled on us, and taken our, our uncleanness and cleanse. Only you can do that. And so we thank you for willingly offering yourself up to make that possible. And we pray that you would keep us from idols. And we realize the only way to do that is to know we've been loved. We've been loved and made children of the living God. And that that has made all the difference. So remind us of that this morning. Change our hearts. Tune them, as the old hymn says, to sing your grace. And may your grace melt our hearts, melt our idols, and change us into the image of the one who bore our sin, the Lord Jesus himself. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Uh, amen. So receive these words as you go. It's the promise as you go, he goes with you. Uh, and as we just sang, stay your heart on him. Uh, if you try to stay your mind, it'll drift. Uh, it, it, it's, not, it's not what makes you you. It's your heart. So if you stay your heart, and the heart can think in the Bible, which sounds weird, but nevertheless, think what spirit dwells within me, what Father's smiles are thine, that Jesus died within me. If you fill your heart with that, uh, the promise is you can do anything that he asks you to do.
So receive these words. It's the blessing as you go. He goes with you. Uh, I just take them as you go. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face toward you and give you his peace, both now and forevermore. Amen. Go in his peace.